Okay. Well, we're we're back here, uh, Rabbi Durbin. We're back. We're back in the studio, man. We're back together. We're in the same place. Sometimes, you know, you take off, I take off, but we are here on the podcast today. And uh, we're in February, and in February it is uh, it's Black History Month, and uh, so there's we see a lot of times what the secular world how celebrates and brings awareness to Black History Month. Uh, but I, I think what we want to do today is reflect on. Uh, so where is where is the where where are our faiths mm-hmm. involved? In this our faith. Let's just say our faith. Where, what does our faith lead us in a reflection on uh, black history, particularly right here in the United States of America, particularly right here in our communities? And uh, let's go below the surface of saying also, too, what, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done mm-hmm. um, that we know. Um, and also, how do, we, how, do we, how do we even start the conversation? Right? How do we start the conversation? How do we move the needle towards where we feel that it needs to go? And people need to be informed and, 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 and have that kind of collective shared experience um, you know, to, to kind of unpack the question. I think you're right. Start, start, the start of the conversation, I think, could be the most challenging. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but for me, in, in my context, is that you have to really think about and strategize the approach of how am I going to start this conversation within my congregation? Because the last thing you want to do, I, I'm, I'm mainly in an all-white congregation— you, you don't want to put anyone on the defensive. Mm-hmm. You don't want to seem like you're accusing anyone, but you do want to recognize the uh, they're, they're still, we still got structural racism that's mm-hmm. apparent. And how do we as a people of faith reflect on this and figure out where is God calling us mm-hmm. in the midst of this? Um, so it's, it's uh, I wouldn't say it's challenging, but there's great opportunity, and the, but there, you can't just jump right into it mm-hmm. when wanting to have these conversations, mm-hmm. um, particularly with white people, mm-hmm. right? So... Um, uh, I say that because you and I are both from predominantly white mm-hmm. congregations. Um, and the fact that Black History Month happens to be in the shortest month of the year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, so so today we, we're going to have on two guests who are in the midst of this dialogue to be talking about race, to be talking about racism. And they are both from Baltimore, uh, which has experienced its own, which is a tremendous amount of tension. It's had events that have happened. There's been an uprising um, in the past. And so we're going to have uh, Reverend Gray Maggiano from Memorial Episcopal Church and um, Rabbi Daniel Bird um, from a synagogue out in like a mile and a half, I think, mm-hmm. from, from his church. And they're going to be talking about just their what has been their experience of trying to take on uh, um, um, Structural racism, mm-hmm. uh, but also how do you do this from a theological standpoint, from a relational mm-hmm. standpoint, right? Uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to what I am going to learn from this, and I'm too because I know this is a conversation we want to start having at our church, mm-hmm. but we want to do it right. Mm-hmm. We want to do it right, mm-hmm. uh, and I know it's something that's uh, um, on the hearts of, of, of folks over at your congregation mm-hmm. as well. Absolutely. So um, we're looking forward to that, and uh, also looking forward to a march that your congregation will be leading. Yeah, we're going to be doing a march, uh, uh, March 1st, uh, Sunday, March 1st at uh, 1 o'clock at the Roosevelt Bridge here in Stewart. Um, we are going to march uh, for the elimination of discrimination, uh, right. looking at um, um, stopping the hate, uh, stopping bigotry, stopping uh, hatred, anti-Semitism. Um, and we're appealing to all churches uh, and certainly to all people within our county um, and, and surrounding areas to, to please join us. And let's, let's finally make an end and a, and a, and a stop to um, judgment 
and uh, judging others and uh, living in peace and harmony amongst uh, ourselves and others. All right. So uh, we've got a great show ahead of you. And, and to please, if you're uh, whatever platform you're on, uh, hit a like on it. And if you comment on it, even if it's a bad comment, it helps the algorithm know like, oh, OK, this is a podcast that people are into, especially if you're on iTunes. So uh, do, do us a great favor to do that and to share it with uh, friends and family and allow this podcast to grow and our outreach to grow in it just by hitting a like and just by sharing it and just by leaving a comment helps tremendously. Uh, God bless you. Enjoy the podcast. And uh, we'll see you on the other side. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the program hosts and their guests and are not necessarily those of WSTU, St. Mary's Episcopal Church, and Temple Bait Hyam. Products that may be mentioned are not necessarily intended as an endorsement. Any reproduction or retransmission of this broadcast is strictly prohibited. And now, WSTU presents a priest and a rabbi. Call in with questions and comments at 220-9788, 220-WSTU. Now, here's your host. Good morning, everybody. This is Father Christian over at St. Mary's Episcopal Church with my favorite rabbi, the best-looking rabbi this side, this side of the Jordan River. It is Rabbi Matthew Durbin from Temple Bet Hayam right here in Stewart, Florida. And we are a priest and a rabbi just joining you in your cars as you drive to work. And what better way to do that but to have two bright, shining clergy members saying, good morning, how you, you know, are you? you? Know, my, my, my favorite is is Father Anderson, that it has taken almost two years now of this of this show, and you have nailed, nailed the Hebrew. We are Beit Hayam. I love it. Beit Hayam. Yes, I'm, I'm there. And, and even later, so in a little bit, we're going to have a, another rabbi on today. And I learned something today that um, he is not from a temple, he's from a synagogue because there's a difference between the conservative and the reform. And so you are at Temple Bet Hayam. I'm just, I'm just glad you, you, you said reform as opposed to reformed. Yeah, that was a mistake early on. Early on the show, if you guys have been listening to, uh, to the show, I, <laughs> in my idiocy, I, I would refer to um, uh, uh, rabbi's denomination as reformed. But it's reform, which which actually comes up much better now when we tag it on social media that actually reform comes up. Reform Judaism does not come up. I don't know why. I mean, that's just whatever. So, uh, so it's good to have you here, brother. I know you're a little bit under the weather, but you made it, and uh, but you're looking good. You're looking strong. How are you? How's your wife? How are your kids? Uh, it's been really good. My 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 youngest just celebrated her birthday on Monday. I saw that on Facebook. So we uh, we we decided to take our kids um, with uh, with my in laws out to. Uh, to Epcot last Sunday, um, um, and uh, just, you know it's a funny story. So you know, whenever it, the few times that we've been to Epcot in the past, um, uh, the second we get there is like a mad rush because we get these like fast passes. We wanted to go to Elsa and Anna's little like thing that they do, uh, so we get there. And immediately my wife is like, we got to go. We got to go. So we like rush into this thing. And, and my kids are freaked out a little bit. You know, they're running. Epcot is not small. It's huge. And by the time they get there, they're exhausted. So, so you know, we do this whole Epcot thing. And, you know, we celebrate her birthday. She turned four uh, on Monday. Um, and it was just, it, 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 was, it, it was a great time. Um, and driving in the car this morning, I said to her, I said, so, you know, Delilah, what's it like? What does it feel like being four? And then I see the head go down. She goes, I just want to be three again. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I find, I, find, I find it uh, almost 42. Uh, I, I say to myself, 
I just want to be. I just want to be forty again. Yeah, 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 yeah. That so it's already, already. This life is weighing on her. You know, it's yeah. a big jump from three to four, man. Your responsibilities start clicking in. You got to start worrying about college tuition. You know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough out there for a girl. So, all right. So today, you know, we for the show, we it is February, so it is Black History Month. And in the past, last year, we brought on some some great civic leaders um, to be talking about this and discussing it from a faith perspective, most importantly, right? So we hear a lot about uh, Black History Month, you know, in the schools and in, in, in other mediums. Um, but it is important for us as people of faith, from houses of worship, um, of the deep reflection that we can have during Black History Month. We we hear a lot about Black leaders that we get um, maybe on, on TV or uh, all the various mediums. But I think it, this time is also a time for a deep reflection of, of how are we, where are we in the midst of, where are we in, in the midst of awareness of, uh, of black history? And, and especially I think as you and I are here, two white guys sitting in a, uh, at a studio booth of our reflection on our, uh, as we talk about black history, but we're really also talking about, let's talk about structural racism that, that we still have and how structural racism has uh, poked its head in religion, how we've seen it in our houses of worship and how uh, at times throughout the throughout just in our country that our respective uh, religions have been complicit. I mean, there's been times when, yes, our leaders have been on the front lines from the Episcopal denomination, from Reformed Judaism, uh, been on the front lines fighting for civil rights, but there have been times when we've definitely been complicit in shaking hands with secular society and enforcing uh, segregation and actually standing against integration. And so we need to do an awareness of this. So to, on today's show, uh, we want to explore this idea of, uh, of, of, uh, of a exploring a history of racism in your own uh, denomination in houses of faith how do you now in the 21st century begin to have that conversation that talk about it and so what rabbi and i are doing is we're going to bring on two guests today not one no not one but two because uh it's a it's it's a weightier topic and so (laughs) we're bringing out two more white guys to talk about this um we're just going to try to own this before you know so right at the top of the show um but there's a reason why we're going to be bringing on uh, father gray maggiano who's an episcopal priest out in baltimore at memorial episcopal church and then also rabbi daniel berg um over at betham synagogue betham synagogue uh, both in baltimore so gentlemen welcome to the show thank you for calling in all the way from sunny and warm baltimore Thanks so much, and I wish it was sunny and warm here. It's uh, about 50 degrees and pouring rain. We had a little, we had, we had a little bit of rain last night, uh, but, um, but yeah, I think it's like 70 outside. It's 62. It's freezing. Oh, gosh. <laughs> All right, so, gentlemen, uh, Gray, you have been on this show before, and uh, it, it, was, it was great having you on the show, and so you were so good. Uh, the, 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 your fans have said, get this guy back on the show, please. Um, and so, but, but Father Gray, let's first start with you. Uh, your church, uh, Memorial Episcopal Church, has been going through quite the journey and reflection over, I believe, over the last year, maybe even longer. Can you just give us a little uh, uh, understanding of what you all have been doing about understanding the history of racism at, at, uh, at your church? Sure. Uh, so Memorial Episcopal Church is a, is a historic church in Baltimore. We were founded in 1860, and the, everybody in Baltimore is, is, is very aware that the, the city is, is hyper-segregated, that we have some neighborhoods that are almost entirely white and many neighborhoods that are, that are almost entirely black, and that the reality um, 
of, of segregation that began a long time ago continues to persist today. And the question that became came raised in our church is why why is our church so segregated? I mean, a Memorial Episcopal Church is a, a again a historic Episcopal Church. The neighborhood that we're in is somewhere around forty percent African American. The the city uh, of Baltimore is between sixty and seventy percent African American, yet the church is ninety ninety five percent white. And we're sort of interrogating why this is. Um, and we began to do some some history of the church, and you know, uh, the first thing we discovered is that, you know, the founding when churches were founded is important because that often says a lot about where they are. And being founded on the eve of the Civil War uh, is, tells a lot about a place. Uh, and so we discovered that it, we were founded in 1860, and that both founders of the church were uh, big supporters of the Confederacy and the institution of slavery. And they both actually were uh, had to enslaved people themselves. Um, and we then discovered that the first of the first eight rectors of the church, seven served in the Confederacy. Uh, so there was a long history, uh, legacy of, of, of Confederate support and support for the institution of slavery that continued well into the 20th century, because the leadership continued to reflect that ethos. Uh, and then, as we dug into the history of segregation in Baltimore. Uh, and uh, this is with a lot of help from a, a book called Not in My Neighborhood, written by a, a former Baltimore Sun reporter who talked, who wrote about the, the history of segregation in Baltimore. But a lot of that began uh, here in, in this community, a, a neighborhood now called Bolton Hill. It was then the Mount Royal District. And uh, there was a strong effort to keep the neighborhood white. Uh, and that began in the parish hall of this church that was members of the church and the community who set up the Mount Royal Protective Association. They assigned block captains to each, each block. They were, uh, the block captains were supposed to watch out for black families trying to buy or rent homes in the community um, and report those up and find ways to keep them out. And there were a, a, a number of pieces of local and, and state legislation that was put forward by lawyers involved in this, some of whom were actually uh, chancellors to the Episcopal Diocese here, which means sort of the lawyer for the whole Diocese of Maryland, uh, who worked to to keep neighborhoods segregated. Uh, one particularly egregious example in the 1920s, uh, uh, a black pastor had, uh, who was pastoring a church nearby at Enon Baptist Church had attempted to buy a house two blocks down from our church. And he purchased the house, and the only way to do that was to allow the former owner, who was white, to live in the third floor. So he rented the third floor to the former owner, and he lived on the first two floors. Because written into the deed of all the houses at that time uh, was that you know the houses could not be occupied by uh, a, a black person. So he purchases the house. He leaves to go on vacation, and when he comes back, all of his possessions are on the front lawn, and he's been evicted from the home because the neighbors conspired to um, not file the taxes due on the purchase of the home, uh, because the tax assessor also lived in the community and helped with this. And and so uh, this was, was eventually overturned in court, uh, and uh, but it was, a, it was a, a very significant court case in the 1920s, and the, this really sort of egregious effort to keep a, a fellow man of God uh, from, from owning a home in the community. So we began to do all this history and storytelling and understanding, you know, why there might be some reticence uh, among uh, Black Baltimore to trust people from Bolton Hill and to trust the church in Bolton Hill. 
Uh, and then we, uh, the, the bishop appointed us a new deacon, uh, the Reverend Natalie Conway, uh, in, uh, I guess, a, a year and a half ago now. Uh, and Natalie grew up in Baltimore. Uh, she's an African-American. She's uh, been ordained, uh, I think, about 10 years now as deacon. And um, she, her family was doing some family genealogy and discovered that they were, her family had been enslaved at a local plantation here called the Hampton Plantation, which was run by the Richley Howard family. And, uh, we, and so she discovered this as... Uh, when at the, about the same time she discovered that the church that she was serving at at Memorial here was founded by the Reverend Charles Ridgely Howard, uh, who was born at Hampton Plantation, who uh, whose parents had enslaved uh, you know more than 400 people at the plantation, uh, and that that her story suddenly was very interconnected to our story, and that really I think pushed things internally in the church to a new level because we it, it suddenly became personal. Um, you know, this story that seemed kind of like distant and esoteric was right in front of us. I mean, it was, it was Natalie's great-grandmother uh, who was enslaved at, at Hampton Plantation, um, someone she has pictures of, someone she's heard stories of, someone that is, is a part of her, her family story. Uh, and we also have in, in our parish a descendant of the Howard family, uh, not a direct descendant of Charles Ridgely Howard because he didn't have any children, but of, of, of the broader Howard family, uh, including those who who enslaved folks at, at, at Hampton Plantation. And so it really became a, 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 a call to us to really do some, uh, you know, introspection uh, and figure out, you know, how, how do we respond to this? What is what what is our response both um, to, to Natalie and to her family, but to the broader you know, black community here in Baltimore? If you're just tuning in, we're, uh, this is a priest and a rabbi um, here at uh, WSTU, and uh, the phone number here is 220-9788, that's 772. Um, but we're on the phone with uh, Father Gray Maggiano. And, um, uh, Father Gray, uh, so this, this process that you went on um, to start this introspection and to interrogate the history, how long, how long has that been going on for, has this journey? We've been, I think, about two years, uh, but the, it really uh, got pushed into high, a higher gear, a different level when Natalie came to be a part of our congregation and when, and when she made this personal discovery, and that happened in the summer of 2019, so about six months ago. And, and yeah, I think what, what, what it taught me was that you know, Natalie was very, she was very nervous at first about sharing her story because she wasn't sure how the church was going to respond. Um, and to be honest, if we had not done all this preemptive work to set to set a, a place where that conversation could be raised, the church probably would not have responded very well. Um, they would have said, that's, that's ancient history, that's not who we are, uh, let's not talk about this. Uh, but because we had done all this preemptive work about our story, it allowed, it created some, some fertile soil for, for her story to, to, to take root and really be, be understood. So there was a key there, there was a moment there where uh, you did have buy-in from the whole congregation to say, oh, we are in a 40 to 6 percent black neighborhood, but yet we're an all-white church. What's going on here? Let's start to take a journey together and learn more about this. I mean, it sounded like from the beginning you had that buy-in. Yes, yes. 
and the reason for that bind was just just curiosity of what what's going on here. What? I, I don't think it was just that, and, and you know, and and uh, Rabbi Berg can speak more to this, but you know, coming to Baltimore, I you know, I came here in 2016, a year after the Freddie Gray uprising. Freddie Gray was a young black man who was killed by police here in Baltimore, and uh, it really uh, brought the whole city to account to, to discuss the issue of police brutality and, and the larger issue of inequality in the city and, and segregation and racism here in the city. And so the, the whole city at that point was, was wrestling with this question. Uh, and and it, to some extent, I don't think if we didn't have that as a base, no one would have wanted to have the conversation, any of the, any conversation around this. Um, there would have been other more important things to talk about, you know, poverty in Africa or, or you know, clean water in South America or you know something else. But because everybody in the city at the same time was wrestling with this question, uh, and, and and you know, Rabbi Berg, who was here during that time, can speak more about what the, that period was like. But that really, uh, there was. There was, there, was, there was a collective conversation going on across the city. That's great. So uh, let, let's bring on um, Rabbi Berg to come on here. So Rabbi Berg, so you are obviously a colleague of, uh, of uh, Reverend Maggiano, um, and you um, help uh, lead a synagogue that's right in Baltimore. And so tell us what the journey that you all have been taking um, as being in Baltimore, a place that it's been a, a hotbed for... Um, uh, for 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 racial uh, divisiveness, um, for racism, and uh, so so what, what's what's the story of, of you and your congregation? Sure. Um, well, first of all, it's great to be on, and uh, really glad to be here with Reverend Gray, who uh, has been a good friend and colleague. Just to give you a sense of the geography, our congregations are probably about a mile and a half apart from one another, and so the neighborhood that Gray is describing in Bolton Hill. Uh, as the crow flies, is, is really quite close. There are our neighbors to the south, but has some very stark differences with the neighborhood where I live, which is Reservoir Hill. I'll also say that both he and I live in our respective neighborhoods, which is, um, for us, and I know for him, was a values choice to, to live where we work and live where we teach and preach and uh, uh, try to uh, be a part of the communities that we want to serve. Um, Reservoir Hill, our neighborhood, um, wa- was uh, and is a majority black neighborhood and has been so for many decades now. But in the early 20th century, it was uh, the heart of the Jewish community of Baltimore. And uh, Jewish migratory patterns in Baltimore really had the community moving in, uh, in the mid-19th century were in East Baltimore and then kind of hopped over to Central West Baltimore and then kind of up um, a street called Utah Place and then just kept going. So if you ever see the movie Liberty Heights, Liberty Heights uh, or Liberty Road are really is really just kind of around the corner from us, right by Mondawmin Mall, which is where the 2015 rioting began, the rioting being one small piece of the overall uprising in Baltimore in the aftermath of Freddie Gray's death. So Freddie Gray was arrested about a mile from where both of us live, uh, and um, the what you saw on the news, um, which was happening between police and young people, uh, that was about a mile from me uh, northwest. Um, in terms of our own congregation, 
we are a 98-year-old building, but a 45-year-old congregation. The synagogue that built our building in 1922 moved out to the county, and for a number of years they maintained two campuses, an in-town and a suburban campus. And in 1974, they were ready to sell the building. Uh, there was every reason to believe it would become a church, like most historic synagogue buildings in Baltimore were as the Jewish community moved or fled, depending how you think about this. And a group of congregants who were affiliated with that congregation or who lived in the city or who were involved in city leadership, uh, or maybe even some who lived in the county but were more urban-oriented uh, and didn't want to leave this historic building, decided to purchase the building from that congregation and to create Bethlehem Synagogue. So uh, we are, we've been a synagogue for almost 100 years, but we've been two different congregations, two different synagogues there. Um, in terms of our own work in the community, I, I, I like to think about what we do as bearing witness to the nexus of history and geography that is our neighborhood. And so how do we authentically embody uh, a Jewish community uh, and all of the, you know, the, the, the beauty that comes along with being a Jewish community in a historically Jewish neighborhood? And then how do we also not just kind of hunker down and act as if we're kind of a UFO planted in a neighborhood which is mostly not Jewish? Most of my congregants live in other neighborhoods. Some do live in our neighborhood, and a number of young families have moved back to Reservoir Hill. Uh, so, but how do we actually serve as an effective community anchor in our neighborhood? How do we um, soften boundaries of race and class? How do we go out into our community and encourage more members of my synagogue to get to know their neighbors? And so that that journey began before I got to Baltimore. I came in 2010, but the work we've been doing since I came has been um, less focused on uh, service, uh, or at least less exclusively focused on service and volunteerism, which has happened for many years, volunteering at the school and greening projects in the neighborhood and helping to rehab some homes uh, and doing maybe occasional health fairs to uh, mobilize uh, whatever resources we have in the congregation uh, to help neighbors in the community. But how do we move to more relational justice work? And the way that we frame this is based on a sermon I gave years ago that I never intended to be the title of anything. But I talked about how in 1974 we were in our neighborhood when others were leaving the city, particularly other white institutions were leaving the city, white people were leaving the city. Uh, and uh, soon we realized that we needed to not be just in the neighborhood, but for the neighborhood, which is when the volunteerism really started uh, and our connections with other institutions, uh, doing drives and things like that. But that the next real vanguard is how are we of our neighborhood? How are we both in, for, but also of our neighborhood? How do we think of our neighborhood as our neighborhood, even if we don't live there, but we worship there or we study there or we volunteer there? And so what we've tried to do is place this IFO lens on the work that we do, whether it's social action work or whether it's ed education. Uh, and um, we actually created a nonprofit in 2013, a separate nonprofit, its own 501c3 that's affiliated with Beth Am Synagogue called IFO. Uh, we have a board of trustees. Uh, some are uh, African-American residents of our neighborhood who are not Jewish. Some are 
Jewish members of our congregation who have white skin privilege. Some live in the neighborhoods and some don't live in the neighborhood. Um, a couple are Jews of color who live uh, in the community. And so what we're trying to do uh, is to work collaboratively with our neighbors to try to dismantle some of the racist and anti-Semitic tendencies that have been present in this country, but certainly have been very much present in Baltimore. Rabbi, this is great. Thank you so much. I have a question for you. Is that there is, at times in our country, and depending on where you're at and which neighborhood you're in, there has been a, uh, a historic tension at times between um, uh, um, African-American and Jewish neighborhoods. So uh, I'm thinking in uh, Los Angeles, I know there's been uh, some tension. And so I don't know if that if that is also prevalent in Baltimore, and if and if it is, have you all have been able to address that or take that on in your relational justice or just building relationships and collaboration within the community? It's a great question. Certainly that tension exists in Baltimore. Happily, it exists less in our community, or I would say it exists differently in our community, because we actually lean into the tension. Uh, we're interested in having that productive discomfort. So we have, like, our IFO organization now is sponsoring a book group where a bunch of uh, members of the synagogue are reading Robin DeAngelo's White um, uh, Fragility and then talking about sort of our own tendencies toward racism and how do we understand that and how do we move through it. Uh, so we're really always looking for ways to grow and inviting our neighbors to sort of learn about us and get to know us as as uh, as people and as our um so i think that because we're in relationship and because we for example like this for black history month tomorrow we're going to be hosting a choir from a black baptist church that's going to be performing and uh there's a bar mitzvah this week so you might think in some situations uh if you wanted to do something like that you say to a bar mitzvah family well uh, we are interested in doing this thing. They'll say, yeah, but really not on like my bar mitzvah. We want the rabbi to give a sermon. We want it to be more of a traditional thing. Do that stuff like another time. But but that time is a place where much more often than not, uh, and I knew this would be the case with this family, the reaction would be, oh, my God, that sounds amazing. What a great way to celebrate my bar mitzvah is to have 20 minutes, 20 minutes of African spirituals and music that celebrates the African diaspora. And so... Um, our congregants, I think, have a better sensitivity. That doesn't happen by accident. Some of it is self-selecting. They've come to our congregation. But some of it is they've been part of the work that we've been doing over several years, and so they feel like showing up uh, for something like this is exactly the sort of Judaism that they want to be a part of. But there are other places in Baltimore where there's great tension and, uh, and where uh, I would say the collaborative work um, is sometimes a little more public relational than it is relational. And uh, that's sad. Uh, some in Baltimore have looked to us in our neighborhood as a model for how um, Jewish communities and African-American communities can work together. And I do want to just note one last thing, which is a lot of times the binary of Jewish and African-American is something we fall into because we have those stories of, like, Dr. King and Rabbi Heschel marching hand-in-hand hand during the civil rights era. And those alliances are powerful, but it's important to remember that 10 to 15 percent of Jews are Jews of color, and they have to locate themselves in that narrative. So the more that we talk about um, Jewish communities uh, not as sort of being mutually exclusive to communities of color, the better we're going to do 
um, both at owning the ways that many of us, most of us, do have white privilege in the Jewish community, but also the ways that we are not monolithic racially or ethnically. And, and Rabbi Berg, you know, to talk about, you know, the congregation in terms of their openness and ability, uh, I mean, did you, you know, through the work that you have done and certainly the community has done at, in its early stages, was there any pushback? Was there 100% buy-in? Are you talking to me? I'm having some trouble hearing you. Oh. Can we, can you hear me now? Uh, barely. Oh. My apologies. Um. Can, okay, so so the rabbi, what rabbi, Rabbi Berg, what Rabbi Durbin is saying is that uh, he is um, wondering if, when you began this work in your congregation, was there any pushback that you were feeling once once this started? Um, was there any tension or any kind of dialogue or conversation that needed to happen in order for for this to uh, in order to begin this um, uh, this process? Oh, for sure, and you know we're a congregation of four hundred. 60 households, and they're not monolithic in their perspectives. There are people who are members of the synagogue because they like the food at, at the kiddish lunch on Saturdays, not because they want to do social justice or racial justice work. So hmm. the goal is not to, like, be, you know, a, a congregation uh, um, of, you know, automatons or Stepford wives. Like, we, people have their views. What we're trying to do is lean into an ethos. And, um, I mean, I'll give you, like, you know, so yeah, like my congregants, for the most part, I would say that they affiliate with their congregation because they like the idea that we're in a black neighborhood, because they like the idea that we're in a historic synagogue, uh, because they like the idea that we do social justice work. Um, but the the sort of level of knowledge and sophistication around questions of structural racism, institutional racism, racism that exists within the Jewish community, uh, that's a, there's a really wide variety. And I got some great advice from Rabbi Susan Talvey, who is at a congregation in St. Louis, who was very involved in uh, the Black Lives Matter movement during its inception after Mike Brown was killed. And when the Baltimore uprising happened, uh, Rabbi Talvey happened to be on the East Coast, and we got a call saying, Rabbi Talvey is around. Would you be interested in her coming to talk to you about what they've learned from Ferguson? And we said, of course, that would be wonderful. So Susan came down to Baltimore, and we all sat on my back porch and invited a bunch of rabbinic colleagues. And she talked to us about what they'd learned and the mistakes they had made and the tensions that still exist and how to kind of move through them. And, and the best advice she had was when, what do you do when people are resistant to these things? And she said, you've you got to love them through it. I'm in this business because I, I love the Jewish people and I love God, uh, and uh, and I also love humanity, even uh, uh, even when they're being uh, terrifying, terrifyingly uh, destructive. And so, um, I sorry, my apologies. Um, so you know that advice of saying we don't have to all be comfortable. The goal here is not comfortable. The goal. Uh, is we have to live lives of purpose. And if I can get more of my congregants to do that with regard to these questions and issues, great. And if I can do it by helping to be present with them in their moments of, of loss, in their moments of joy, 
um, also great. Uh, we're not a one-trick pony. I think this is what you, you said, is that loving people through this process, uh, no matter what uh, comes up and the tensions and the pushback that you get, is 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 key, right? I, over here in Stewart, we are in a post-segregationalist area. Um, I've had a congregant um, uh, come in just recently wanted to say, what is the history? I mean, there's such a deep history here in just Stewart, Florida, of uh, of the effects of segregation and when you go to uh, the museums that we have here they don't talk about the black history and they don't even recognize uh, what the effects of what of, of just the segregationist past mm-hmm. that there's institutions that we have here in town that once upon a time were completely segregated that high schools that was the black high schools the white high school and it's not talked about and when it's not talked about it's just completely swept under but what that doesn't allow us though as especially just from people of faith to, to be able to to discern and to talk about okay what we, we might be different people we are today uh, however what happened during the 30s 40s and 50s and 60s here in in Stewart has definitely affected uh, the structures that we're a part of and these structures are, are still uh, facilitating um, of, of racism uh, and ex- exclusivism and we look at the black neighborhood here in Stewart. It's not made on a grid, so that grid cannot permeate into the other part of the town. It was it was purposely made so it would be separate. Um, and so there's all these uh, uh, still lasting impact of of really how uh, um, it's created dividing lines in our community. But we're not talking about it. Um, and so when we want to start and i was really uh, inspired by uh father gray gave a workshop at a big conference that we were at called rooted in jesus about the process that their congregation is taking and i think that there's some hunger in our church to start taking that journey however the voices that are coming forward are the voices that you expect to say hey we want to have this conversation we need to learn more there's something that's being swept under the rug here however uh I'm curious when we and we haven't done the research that that Father Gray has done, which is now where was our church? Where was St. Mary's complicit in this? We haven't looked through decisions and choices and opinions that were made during the 30s, 40s and 50s and 60s from our church. And so we want to take that journey. However, uh, is there's there's a process here that you have to I guess respect because you don't want to lose anyone and you don't want to go jump right into it head first, I'm assuming, and maybe Father Gray, you can speak to this, uh, of, of, I think, Father Gray, you said first, you start with, let's, let's just talk about our church and the, and the history of the church, and then say, and also, let's talk about the whole history, and we got some parts of here which are, which are not pretty, as opposed to saying, hey, everyone, there's some parts of our church that are not pretty, let's talk about this right now. Y- you might lose people, and then now the conversation has gone nowhere. I mean, F- Father Gray, am I, am I um, aligning with what, what you mentioned in the past here? I think the thing that's important to remember, I think a good a good place to start is you know why do we do this work? And 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 Rabbi Berg put it well that you know for them it's about it's about being in relationship and improving relationship with the community around them, um, and living into their Jewish values. And so for us as as, as people of faith, I think one of the reasons that the churches need to do this work is not necessarily to sort of whip ourselves for all the terrible things we've done in the past, but to be able to say to to to, to remind ourselves that in 100 years, in 50 years, people are going to look back on us and say all the terrible things that we did. So you know, <laughs> we do this work in part to help, to help be better citizens today, not just to, to you know, make some, some statement atonement for the past and create a better world today that we can, can live into. 
And so, so which requires a little bit of grace and, and the need to, to look at the past and say, yes, uh, you know, here are all these terrible things that these people did. And yet they were also our, our brothers, our sisters, our parents, our grandparents. Uh, they, were, they were priests and, and, and people who were beloved in, in God's church. Um, they, were, they were faithful congregants, whether they were in a Jewish synagogue or a Christian, Christian church. Um, and they also made some bad choices. Uh, and, and being able to, to hold that tension together uh, is important. Um, and, and I think part of, and, and also looking for relationship um, as part of the converse, as part of the work. Uh, one of the, one of the things I, I think the big failings that you see when sort of the secular world tries to do this, and uh, not to be critical of any particular organization, but often when things are done entirely in a vacuum, we forget about the reason. Um, and if you put a bunch of well-meaning white people together and say, well, let's, let's talk about racism without any context for, for what the purpose is or why they're doing it, you end up just creating uh, a vehicle to, to, to out, you know, woke each other as to, to who can be the most <laughs> uh, aggressively anti-racist without actually doing anything to make the current world we live in a, a better, more livable place. So a lot of the work that we've tried to do here is is in that relational vein of being, you know, there's a, there's an Episcopal church six blocks away that's a historically black Episcopal church because they couldn't join our church. So how can we improve relationships there? Uh, our neighborhood association uh, started a group called the Social you know, Action Task Force that, be, that has begun to partner with organizations and community organizations uh, across Utah Place. Uh, which is the historic dividing line between white Baltimore and black Baltimore, to to develop better relationships and to to create partnerships, um, and using that as a as a way to kind of uh, to give purpose for why we're doing this beyond just kind of feeling better about ourselves. Right. This is good. So, gentlemen, I, I'm going to take a, a quick break here, and when we come back, is this is, is get your insights on if any church or synagogue is out there right now that is looking to take this journey just did what your uh, words of advice are going to be of things to think about and discern and what to pray about um, and a little bit about where is God in the midst of all this why do we do all this um, and what what inspires you both in the work that you do from a theological standpoint from a spiritual standpoint where do you feel uh, the spirit is moving you both so we'll be right back here on a priest and a rabbi uh, with uh Reverend Gray and with Rabbi Dan. You're listening to a priest and a rabbi podcast. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe and please leave a rating and a review. Five star rating and a positive review if you can. We certainly appreciate it. That is the best way to make sure that others out there just like you can find this podcast. If you want to get in contact with Father Christian and Rabbi Durbin, you can do so by emailing a priest and a rabbi at gmail.com. And the absolute best way to get a hold of the fellas is to call into the radio show. This podcast airs live on the radio every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. on WSTU 1450. And you can listen live online at WSTU1450.com. And if you want to join the show, you can call in to 
972-220-9788. That's 772-220-WSTU. Hey, everyone. This is Father Christian here on A Priest and a Rabbi. So happy for you to be here on this podcast with us. And I want to let you know that I have started a YouTube channel called Your Favorite Christian, and you can check it out on YouTube. And uh, every Monday, I drop a new episode, and it's always through the lens of faith, but taking on different topics such as dating, relationships, marriage, pop culture. Uh, I've done one recently where I went out to the art show and talked about how do we find our relationship with God through all the what all the latest artists are doing. Um, last week was what do women really want um, in a man, uh, and interviewing different people to be a part of that. So uh, please check that out on YouTube. Subscribe, like, share. Uh, Put on the notifications so you get that every Monday. Um, I also want to let you know of uh, we this podcast wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a generous donor from St. Mary's Episcopal Church who wishes to remain anonymous. All he asked though was that um, the information gets out that St. Mary's Episcopal Church here in Stewart has a healing center, and so you can call if you're looking for a counselor, someone to be there for you during a challenging time, and you can call the church at seven seven two two eight seven three two four four. We also have a group of Stephen ministers who have been trained over 50 hours of training to be with you and walk with you during a time of crisis. They are not counselors. They are trained just to be more of the presence um, of, of Christ or and, and walk with you during a time of crisis, whether it's a, a good crisis of having, oh my gosh, my daughter's about to get married, or if there's something a little bit heavier. So give us a call, 772-287-3244, and I thank that anonymous donor who uh, makes this all possible. All right, God bless you, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. And welcome back to the second part of A Priest and a Rabbi here, where we are uh, on the phone uh, with Reverend Dan and Reverend Gray out of Baltimore, both uh, who are, um, well, actually, we say Rabbi Dan, uh, but he's, he's Reverend. He, 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 he's, he's revered. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, both of our colleagues here, uh, we, we are during this time of Black History Month, we are discussing and wanting to go below the surface here of discussing from uh, in our houses of worship how we are approaching uh, racism and racial tension uh, in our neighborhoods and the context that we uh, exist in? What is our responsibility as clerics uh, to address the obvious uh, issues of either historical racism, and we know historical racism then has effect on our present-day racism. We can't just say, oh, we're all good now, right? We all, we were all well, past the civil rights. Every, everything's good and peachy now. So, but, so, but I think also, you know, it's also about how do we start the conversation, right? We know that this exists. We know that there are challenges that have existed throughout uh, our historical past. And how do we as um, members of faith, uh, uh, clergy members within our respective communities, how do we engage our communities to open up the conversation and to move past just the conversation towards uh, trying to make some semblance of you know, peace, harmony, whatever it may be, to explore the issue and to really tackle something that is very uh, very challenging, very difficult in our midst to be able to inform and educate others on on the process that has happened. And I bet, and I'm assuming that there's a very well we know that there's a very spiritual. There's a spiritual discernment that has to come along with this. So if anyone is, I'm sure you can always contact Reverend Gray to to hear more about. He I mean he teaches workshops on this of how he's uh, approached this or speaks at conferences about this of how. 
how Memorial Episcopal Church has taken this approach. Um, but there is a, as, and, and we also want to call out today, as, as we said this at the top of the show, that we do realize uh, the irony here that we're just four white guys sitting here talking about this. Um, and and in the, you know, th- with the priest and rabbi uh, show throughout this month, we are going to be bringing on various leaders, um, African-American leaders, white leaders, just, just, just let's have the dialogue and the discussion. But there is a, I think there's a, a, a responsibility we have as clerics to take this head on. Um, I, I, I like the, the um, uh, to refer to James Cone, uh, a black liberation the- uh, theologian who says, you know, if the church, and you can put synagogue, temple right in there, if the church is to remain faithful to its Lord, it must make a decisive break with the structure of this society by launching a vehement attack on the evils of racism in all forms. It must become prophetic, demanding a radical change in the interlocking structures of this society. And there's, you know, for me, we can, the, there's a relational aspect. We build these relationships, but there's a, and we can talk about it. And I think what Reverend Gray was talking about that you can, you know, outwoke one another. <laughs> but then there's a part of like, now we got to look at the structures that are in place. And um, I just want to hear from both of you gentlemen that the work that you're great work that you're doing within your communities. What is the, the theological fire or the spiritual fire that's behind you when you're praying to God, when you're uh, forming your sermons? Um, where are you finding God in the midst of this or the, the urge, the catalyst to do this from, from, from how God is, is moving you? How, how has that relationship been um, or that journey been from a spiritual standpoint? Yeah, well, I, I would I would say first of all, uh, uh, Father Gray and I uh, try not to outwoke each other, but I, I'm, he might be able to out, outwoke me. Um, he, he was able to outpedal me. We actually got to travel uh, by cycle uh, bicycle uh, from Jerusalem down to a lot together fairly recently. An amazing bike ride of almost 300 miles, and uh, and and Reverend Gray was definitely taking those those hills uh, faster than I was. So. Um, uh, it's been a delight to get to know him both locally and to do some traveling together. Um, you know, for our part, um, I think that, first of all, I, I actually think it's a great thing that it's four white guys talking about this. And I agree that obviously we want to hear voices from African Americans speaking for themselves. But part of the problem that we have in this country is that too many white people don't take the opportunity to talk to other white folks right. about our racism and about our implicit biases. And I think one of the things we're learning is that the more we do take those opportunities to have those conversations, the more that we as people of privilege, right, white, straight men, for example, uh, um, will actually kind of like move through our own problematic uh, behavior in in the world. And um, the world has been uh, greatly damaged by uh, the power that straight white men have wielded in many instances. They also do some good things, but... So I think having this conversation is great. From the, from the Jewish perspective, I mean, I think um, I, could, I could regale you with lots of stories, as I'm sure Rabbi Durbin could as well. Um, two stories that I use to kind of frame our thinking is, one, uh, a story about Abraham that comes from the Midrash, the interpretive tradition of the written Torah, uh, in which, like, the question is asked, why did Abraham come to his monotheism? Why did he believe in God in the first place and be able to answer, yes, I'll go to this new land when this God that he'd never met before called out to him? 
And the Midrash um, explains that he was like a person walking around and noticed a palace on fire. And when he saw that the palace was on fire, his immediate instinct was, well, maybe nobody's in charge of this place. Maybe nobody's putting out that fire. Maybe there's just nobody home. And at that moment, the master of the palace peeks out from the curtains and says, no, I'm, I'm here. I'm in charge of this place. And the rabbis talk about this as a, an analog for the world, that we notice the world's on fire. Abraham noticed that the world was on fire. Uh, and his immediate reaction was actually not monotheism. It was atheism. It was, wow, maybe nobody's in charge here, <laughs> and kind of goads God out of hiding, who then has to say, wait a second, I'm in charge, but, but I didn't start this fire. Like, I didn't, I didn't light the palace on fire. You all did that. I gave you free will, and now you have to put it out. Uh, I'm going to be here with you, but I'm not going to fix it for you. So that's one thing that I think about a lot. And the second story that I think about uh, a lot is a story that comes from the Talmud of a particular... A uh, guy, a uh, farmer who is clearing fieldstones from his property, and he's taking the fieldstones and he's chucking them out into the street so that he can better plant his crops. And along comes an old man and sees him doing this, and he says, "Sir, what are you doing throwing stones from property which is not yours into property that is yours?" And the farmer thinks about this for a second and says, "Wow, this guy's nuts. What is he talking about? I'm not throwing property from." Uh, stones from property that's not mine. This is my property. This is my land. And that's just the street. That doesn't belong to me. Uh, and so he dismisses the guy out of hand. But several years later, he learns the lesson of what this older man was talking about when he falls on hard times financially and he loses his farm. And one day he's walking along the street and he trips on one of the stones that he had thrown there. And I think a lot about space and shared space in our community. Uh, what does it mean to actually claim the public square as our land? And what does it mean to cede responsibility for what we think is our personal space to some broader collective? And how does that help us understand the way that we came about uh, possessions of things? You know, it is absolutely true that because of uh, federal Housing uh, Authority uh, policies and redlining, um, people who look like me were able to purchase homes in neighborhoods that people of color were not. And um, being aware of that, being aware of the privilege that comes with ownership and what it means for others who may not have the same access to what people of privilege have, is I think how we begin to move through uh, some of uh, this uh, real uh, these destructive tendencies of structural and institutional racism in America. That was well put, really well put. Uh, Jens, this is great, and we're, we're nearing the end of the show here, but and so we have a couple minutes left, but I want to, uh, Reverend Gray, if, if you could give just a little bit of insight, too, about where, where do you find God in the midst of this or how God is moving through you or you feel God moving through your congregation in a, doing this valuable work? You know, I think the, you know, uh, I, I always lament when I talk to Daniel because, uh, they have this this rich you know you know thousand year tradition uh, in the the Mishnah and the Talmud of, of of storytelling and 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 we you know in our in our Christian tradition don't have quite the same the same depth. Uh, so often uh, I when I don't have something for a sermon I uh, you know will call Daniel up or we'll meet together and then I'll you know blatantly steal something from that tradition. 
my sermon better. Um, so I'll have to keep those in my head. So thanks, Daniel. Um, but the, I think the place that, that I see God in this is you know, reflecting on Jesus' uh, encounters with the Samaritans throughout throughout his ministry and the way he talks about Samaritans. And it's, uh, you know, and there's a lot of, of danger here in those conversations uh, has historically raised a lot of, of anti-Semitism and division between the Christian community and the Jewish community. But if we if we spend some time with those stories, what we find Jesus saying, uh, I think, is that, you know, none of us are free to all of us are free. Uh, and that, that we... We always, you know, God is always bigger than the world that we imagine, the world that we live in, and we can't just, we can't just fix the problems um, in our church without acknowledging the issues that are going on outside the church walls, and we can't fix the problems in our small community without acknowledging some of the stuff going on in the community around it, and and so, you know, seeing that play out in real life gives me life. Um, the 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 relationship we've been able to develop with St. Catherine's Episcopal Church, which is a historically black Episcopal church a, a few miles away, or a few blocks, sorry, a few blocks away, I mean, less than less than half a mile away from our church. Uh, it, and it what was surprising, I think, to my congregation, it was surprising first that they, they didn't know a church was there at all. Uh, there was an Episcopal church so close. And then it was even more surprising to them that, that they didn't know we were here. Uh, and this is often how, how whiteness works in the world, that we just assume everyone knows about us because we're great and wonderful. Um, but the reality is they had no more interest in us than we had in them. And, and now we're Reverend Gray, I just want to keep you in mind that we just got, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, oh, but then we got okay. about 40 seconds left on the show. Um, and so to jump in, and I to apologize for that. Um, but uh, listen, I, I, there's a lot of, of, of fodder here to, to keep continue to uh, to uncover here. And if anyone, you know, you're listening, you want to learn more about this, you know, to find uh, um Rabbi Berg over at Bethlehem Synagogue and then Father Gray Maggiano over uh, at Memorial Episcopal Church in Baltimore. And you go on their website and check out the great work that they are doing out there. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, it was uh, really just awesome. I wish we had more time to get into this. And I'm sorry, restricted by time. If you're just tuning in, you can check out the podcast, A Priest and a Rabbi. Google it and hear the rest of it. God bless you, gentlemen, and hope to see you again soon.